Welcome to the Everyday Sublime Podcast. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. I'm excited to bring you today's interview with Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Judd, as he goes by, is the Director of Research and an Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He's also a research affiliate at MIT, and before that, he held research and teaching positions at Yale University and the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. As an addiction psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness for treating addiction, Dr. Judd joins me on the podcast today to discuss his application of reward-based learning for understanding and breaking the cycle of addiction to either cell phones, beliefs, to a sense of self, or really to anything. Now, this episode marks the beginning of a slight shift in the podcast. From here on out, at least for the while, around once a month, I will release a long-form interview like this one with a special expert guest. And then, following that episode, about two weeks later, I'll release a reflective solo cast on some specific themes that are taken from this long-form conversation. Time will tell how this shift plays out, but I hope the long-form interview will provide a more satisfying listening experience, and I hope the shorter solo cast reflective episodes will inspire ways to integrate the topics and themes of these longer interviews more readily into your practice of yin yoga and meditation. You might think of it like this. I'm starting to envision the podcast morphing into something like a loose and ongoing course of study. Each month, the longer interview provides a deep dive into the theoretical aspects of a particular theme with a relevant expert from the field. And then this deep dive will be followed up with a more didactic lesson-like episode from me, where I tried to distill ways to apply the theory, the theory of the longer form interview, into your teaching and practice. So I hope this shift proves to be of value. Now, as I record this on the summer solstice, I can't help but be aware of how hot things are right now. Hot on so many levels. Our environment, our politics, our discourse, our blood. Temperatures are running hot. And like many of you, I've been reading and listening to as much as I can to make sense of all that is inflamed right now. And it's a lot. The world, as the Buddha said centuries ago, is indeed on fire. For now, I simply want to say that I stand firmly in commitment to a more just equitable, and compassionate world. And I continue to appreciate how the practice of yoga and meditation can provide a sustainable and vital shift in consciousness in support of that commitment. There is much more to be said and much more to be done. But today, I will leave it there and pause. I'll pause and I'll, have the, I'll hold the intention to follow up later in a few more weeks with something more significant to say once my thoughts have cohered into something that I deem useful enough to actually share. But as you listen today, one theme from this interview with Dr. Judd that seems relevant to this moment is when Judd gets into discussing the neuroscience of cognitive bias and how a sense of self can harden and calcify into an identification around a view, belief, thought, or idea. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, and you'll need to listen carefully. In fact, I've now listened to this episode three times, and each, with each listening, I keep hearing subtler insights that Dr. Judd shares that I missed or didn't even recognize during the interview itself. So may we all continue to listen deeply. May that listening connect us more directly to the holistic totality of this moment with its historical roots and its aspirational futures. And may that receptive connection be the basis for our wise and compassionate engagement. I now bring you Dr. Judson Brewer.
Dr. Judd, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast. Thanks for having me. So as a way to introduce you, I, in the intro, I will have gone over your bona fides. Um, but uh, personally, we met a few years ago uh, when I came out to the Center for Mindfulness at University of Massachusetts to be a participant in one of your studies. And um, after we were, I was hooked up to the EEG and doing various forms of meditation, which I had the distinct feeling that I was probably in the experienced meditation category practicing badly because <laughs> I don't I don't think my performance anxiety my, performance anxiety I don't think certain of my my brain regions were going offline sufficiently uh, well um, but after that that uh, that that trial um, we hung out in your office for a few hours talking I remember eating an apple and I won't speak for you, but I felt a veritable man cru- intellectual man crush blooming. And then after we got to, uh, I saw you, then we did reconvene and consummate that man crush once. I think we attended um, a Sam Harris talk at Harvard. Yes. yes. And and then and then our, our our man crush became a victim of circumstance that <laughs> you and I both became busy and and in the ensuing years, you really have skyrocketed. Um, I think you were you were on your way up at that point, but I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. Um, and now you, I would say, you're kind of a veritable rock star at the intersection of neuroscience, mindfulness, and addiction. And uh, in 2017, you published a book called The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break, the ha- bad ha- how we can break bad Habits. And it's not often that I do this on the podcast with a, with a new guest, but... I'm turning off Siri for a second. Um, but I want to sort of offer a potential alternative title for this book after having read it now. Because the, okay. book, the book was amazing. And it, let's it, hear it. it. Yeah, let's hear so, it. So this probably wouldn't work with your publisher. But the thought I had was it could be called The Operantly Conditioned Self, How Bad It Can Suck, and How We Can Hack It to Save Ourselves from Ourselves. Oh, <laughs> dude, I love it. <laughs> and my publisher would never buy it. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. I love it. Absolutely. Save ourselves from ourselves. Right. Um, but it actually, from a, you know, I know there's marketing involved here, but um, after we met, I know you, you, you did your TED Talk, which, in which you kind of um, explained some of the findings you're, you're, you're coming to around the effectiveness from mindfulness and smoking cessation. And while that was cool, I, you know, the addiction thing didn't really grab me that much because I don't think I understood the deeper implications of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now reading through your book, uh, I felt like I was sort of peering into the mirror on every page. <laughs> and, 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 and so there's really a, a profound insight that I think you're, you're, you've stumbled upon that I want to look at. So in this conversation, we're going to be talking about, of all things, addictions to technology, to the self, to really anything, um, how insights from uh, the reward-based learning model can can help us uh, understand those addictions better, and how mindfulness can offer ways to break these cycles of bad habits and uh, help instill better habits. And I thought as a way to begin, um, it might probably make sense to begin with what this model of reward-based learning is. Otherwise, mm-hmm. sometimes it's called operant conditioning. Um, or reinforcement learning is another term for it. Yeah. yeah, reinforcement learning. And rather than coming at it just from the from the sort of the abstract level, I wanted to pitch you a very softball um, with an anecdote from my dog. Okay. And so, my I've had my dog now for eight or nine years, and a few times a day, there's a delivery truck, whether it's a UPS truck or a USPS truck that pulls up, and. It's as though my dog is finally calibrated to the axle of those trucks, and as soon as they the, the, the squeak of the brake stops or k- yeah. kicks in or outside of the apartment, my dog is going ballistic. He's barking. Mm. He's you know storming every door, every window. Um, it's a full-on assault. And then as soon as the package is dropped at the doorstep, the delivery truck leaves, and my dog calms down. And for years now, I've been looking at this behavior like, why is he? Why doesn't he get it? Mm-hmm. Why does he keep doing this? And in reading your book, I think I came to an insight of why he continues to do that. But I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it over to you now to explain what, what is my dog doing? 
Yeah. So it's a basic survival instinct. You know, uh, reinforcement learning or reward-based learning has three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward, at least reward from a brain perspective. So if we see food, that's the trigger. We eat the food, that's the behavior. And then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain. That's the quote-unquote reward. What that's telling us is remember what you found, what you ate and where you found it. The same thing is true for danger. You know, if we see danger, it's a trigger. We run away. That's the behavior. And then the reward is we don't get eaten. Um, so both of those get reinforced through positive reinforcement, like with the food and negative reinforcement with the danger. So think of your dog. And maybe this is what you were thinking of as well. So your dog is thinking, you know, delivery guy equals food. <laughs> and so there's this sound that gets associated with food. And he hears the sound. He thinks, okay, I'm going to get food today, you know, whatever that is, whether it's I don't, your dog's probably nice. But you can imagine all the things that a dog might associate with, with reward, whether it's, you know, um, getting to guard the house or, you know, that's the danger signal. You know, you hear the guy come up to the house. That's the trigger. The behavior has got to bark to protect my master. That's the, you know, that behavior. And then the reward is that the dog you know, I don't, I don't want to anthropomorphize dogs too much, but probably feels good when you, you pet him, um, when you give him attention, when, you know, when he feels like he's guarded the house, whatever. Uh, so there are a bunch of different ways that they can get reinforced. How, which one would you think is true for your dog? If, if not just one, probably many. Well, I actually think it's, I think, I think the behavior, again, to anthropomorphize him is, is a protective behavior. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to protect his home from danger. And, and, when the truck leaves, my dog wins. Mm, so it's negatively reinforced. So he's <laughs> like, like, look, look, truck went away. I did it. Exactly. I did it. <laughs> so I need to do it again. And that's <laughs> and why it'll he work does it. every time. <laughs> it does. So there's no reason for him to stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous. Um, yeah. Great no, example. It was, it was yeah. a good, good insight for me when I thought of this when I was walking my dog. Um, but you use that reward-based model to really dive into and explain virtually every kind of behavior that we get hooked into doing over and over again, particularly negative ones. Is that right? Yeah. Well, as an, as an addiction psychiatrist, I'm really trying to figure out you know, what's going to help my patients the most and be most efficient and most effective at helping them. And as a neuroscientist, I want to understand how the mind works so that we can develop the most effective treatments. Uh, because, you know, to date, you know, there's a lot of willpower based stuff, you know, like if you're anxious, just stop being anxious. If you want to quit smoking, just stop you know, smoking. If you want to, if you want to um, stop overeating, you know, just use your willpower and, and force yourself to eat salad instead of cake. It's not how our brains work. And that's why these treatments tend not to be very effective. So, you know, I was really inspired by all the suffering uh, that my patients have had in my clinic and also my own suffering. You know, I cause, cause too much suffering myself. So I really want to understand what this process was so I could, you know, we could, we could map it out on a scientific level and then we could develop effective treatments on a clinical level. Mm -hmm. um, so as we go through it, one of the things I want to have an eye towards is putting this in context around sort of the development of a sense of self and experience of self on a spiritual continuum too. Cause I okay. think there, I think there's a way that, uh, th this all lines up nicely, at least as I understand it from your book. Um, but if we start with something like simple that everyone can relate to right now, which is sort of an addiction to technology, I think there's nobody that, that is walking around with a smartphone right now that doesn't feel either ruled or controlled or, or, or just tyrannized by it. And um, myself included, and um, your this model of, of reward-based learning seems to explain what's going on. Because so, can you use that as an example, and then yeah. and then even maybe start to suggest how would someone like reverse engineer the understanding of reward-based learning to to liberate themselves from that tyranny. Yeah, so I think these uh, these weapons of mass distraction, you know, I'm holding up my phone, Great. Um, have some unique, uh, unique elements to them that make them especially sticky. 
I basically think of it as a slot machine in our pocket that we are paying for. <laughs> you know? So there are a couple of things that really reinforce this uh, operant conditioning or reward-based learning. And the main thing is the reward schedule. So when somebody first um, gets a reward for something, their brain fires dopamine that says, remember this, okay? But that quickly shifts, that dopamine firing quickly shifts not from receiving the reward or the not from doing the behavior, but from to toward anticipating the behavior. And it moves us into, it motivates us to action. So when we learn where food is, that dopamine firing goes to say, okay, now you know where it is, go get it. Okay, so that that gets set up most um, optimally, I should say, or most uh, most in the most sticky way through what's called uh, this intermittent reinforcement, where we don't know when we're going to get a reward, because if we knew we would have already learned that. So it's when we find something new, right? You come upon a new a new source of food and you're like, wow, there's a new source of food. I didn't ever think that it would be there. That helps us remember that and separate that out from all the the noise of the rest of everyday life. So um, it, let me pause there. Does that make sense or do we need yeah, to Yeah, you know, and, and I, I've, I've read blogs about this and you can, you can disabuse me if I've gotten this wrong, but in, in terms of the routinized reward, the, the regularly rewarded uh, form of reinforcement versus mm -hmm. the random or intermittent, my, my lay understanding is like with rats hit in a cage where they hit a lever and they get a pellet every time they hit the lever, that's called the, the, the regular routine yep. reward. Yep. And there's a certain amount of dopamine that they get when they do that. But when they hit the lever and every now and then or in a randomized way, the pellet comes out, the dopamine surge is exponentially greater. It's greater. And if you get it on a regular schedule, that dopamine is actually going to stop firing. So if you keep getting it, you're not, it's not going to be associated with dopamine firing. Because, and what that signals is that you've learned that food is always going to be coming at this time. So yeah. the dopamine actually stops firing when you get that food. Right. So, but this is, but this I think lays, plays into why the randomized or the, the intermittent yep. reward schedule is so hooking and sticking, right? Sticky, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So if let's apply that to phones then. So exactly. if you have your alerts, so it, you can, you can ramp this up to get more intermittent reinforcement, depending on how, how many alerts you have set on your phone. So most phones were originally set up for phone calls. Maybe people remember what that's like to talk on the phone to people. Um, but now so, phones are used more for texting and for checking social media and for checking the news. So every time you set up an alert that says, tell me when I get a new email, tell me when I get a new text, tell me when I get a new tweet, tell me when I get a new Facebook you know, like or whatever. Each time we do that, we're setting up an intermittent reinforcement schedule because we don't know when we're going to get the next text, when we're going to get the next tweet. And that's I think that's precisely why texting is now more dangerous than drunk driving, uh, mm -hmm. because people cannot control themselves when they get a beep on their phone because they're like, oh, new information. Who is it that texted me? I know people I literally know people that lock their phone in their trunk when they drive. Because that's the only way they can can control themselves. That's how sticky it is, mm -hmm. right? And and it's not just the the notifications. It's even like if you go to email, you know, m majority of your email is kind of blah to meh kind of messaging you're getting. Yeah. But every now and then you get that really exciting email that gets you hooked to, to come check back even more. Right. Or the same the same algorithms get played out in social media the way they they send you notifications and little flashy red um, notification likes and things, right? Yeah. So case in point, you know, when our boss sends us an email in all caps that says, call me now, that just reinforces us to check our email as compared to our freaking boss calling us, <laughs> you know, and not freaking us out, not telling us whether it's good or bad, whether we're going to get a promotion or get fired, you know, so that fires off that surge of dopamine. And then we associate email with, you know, with uh, either reward or danger, <laughs> So, mm -hmm. right. So any bosses out there, just call your employees if there's something important. You do have their phone numbers, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so to develop a saner relationship to technology, are there any simple takeaways you would recommend? 
the first takeaway I would say is really just understanding how this process works. And if we can understand how our minds work, then we're going to be much uh, less of a slave to our minds. You know, then we'll be able to work with them. So that's the first step. The second step, and this relates to uh, all sorts of changing all sorts of habits, you know, around even smoking or eating or even anxiety is to really see the lack, how rewarding the behavior actually is. Uh, and we can go into that now if you'd like. Sure. Uh, okay. So with reward-based learning, it's, you know, these rewards have this hierarchy that's set up in our brain. And it's, it's the reward value seems to be stored or an essential element of that uh, brain region is the orbitofrontal cortex. And what it does is it kind of stores a relative reward hierarchy with just co composite values. It, it doesn't store a bunch of information. It just says this is more rewarding than this. I'll give you a, a concrete example. Uh, milk chocolate versus dark chocolate. When you are given a choice between the two, which one do you pick? Dark. Yeah. Do you have to think about it? No. Okay, so your brain has set up a reward hierarchy very similar to mine. <laughs> and so what it's doing is it's saying, okay, when I eat this, I get this reward. When I eat this, I get this reward. And if there's one that's more rewarding than the other, then our brain says, yeah, don't worry about it. You don't have to think about this. You don't have to relearn this. I got this. Just, you know, this one's more rewarding. So is that, is that hierarchy? That hierarchy is not innate, right? I mean, so there's there's got to be a percentage of the population out there that has the inverse to us. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say there are some people that like milk chocolate more than dark chocolate. So those can get associated. So there's certainly genetics that play a role, but they can also uh, the the reward that's associated the or the different um, I would say behaviors and circumstances that are associated with the behavior also determine the reward value. So for example. My patients with uh, with alcohol alcohol use disorder, there's this saying: people, places, and things. You know, if you avoid people, places, and things, you're less likely to drink. What that points out is we can associate certain people with drinking. We can associate certain places with drinking. We can certain associate certain things, and it's not just drinking. This applies to any addiction. So uh, think of um, well, let's use the food example. Um, uh, birthday parties. You know, when we started going to birthday parties at a young age. We, it was not only the cake, but it was the associated ice cream, presents, friends, party, fun, all that stuff. And so that certain composite reward value got set up that our brain then just stores. I think of it as set and forget. So you set the reward value to forget about the details. And every time you go to a birthday party, as long as you're having on whole good birthday parties, fun ones, you're going to reinforce that over and over and over and over to the point where it just becomes a habit. You see cake, you eat cake. You don't think about the reward value. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just the you know like the caloric value per se, but it's all these other things that are associated. So with milk chocolate, somebody might associate milk chocolate with with a wonderful date or some other magical thing where their dopamine totally got jacked in their brain and they're just like, oh, milk chocolates to die for. And what they're really thinking, what they're really recalling is not just the milk chocolate, but whatever the circumstances were in which they ate it. Yeah, I, actually, as you're talking, I, I recall having milk chocolate in Switzerland and thinking it was actually not as bad as I thought it was supposed to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were in Switzerland. Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the frames that I've, has been rattling in my mind, and I want to run this by you uh, and, and flesh it out over a few other examples, but the frame that I've been, I've been formulating in my mind is that all of these quote-unquote things that we can bind ourselves to in an addictive way have a, f a, a utility or functionality for our life. Like a smartphone, for example, there's, there's a lot of utility in it. It's just then when, when that utility kind of hijacks us and becomes a, uh, well, the, the tyrant of our person, our, of our identity, it, it becomes a kind of identity in our life mm -hmm. that it becomes a really bad place to be living in, in a way. Yeah. Um, and, First up, before I move on from that, do you, do you sort of see that as well? That totally in a way that totally like, agree. So, um, because when we get into shifting gears into talking about addiction to our sense of self, which is a, a very spiritual theme found in Buddhism and other traditions, um, one of the things that we that the sense of self is reinforced and reified within is 
one's relationship to thinking. And I know you have a chapter in your book on addiction to thinking. So I kind of want to talk about that, but also have an idea of like, use this frame of that this, the self that thinks has a functionality mm-hmm. and there's use, there's utility, great utility to that. But as a, as a, a home for identity, it's also an, an inevitable nightmare of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could start that with, hi, my name is Judd. I'm addicted to thinking. I'm an addict. So how does that get set up? Well, for well, me, and, and, and oh, sorry to cut you off. Sorry to cut you off because uh, again, I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but uh, there's a there's there's a kind of a stigma around the word addiction, and and the way you've described it in terms of operant conditioning, it, it's clear to me that addiction is not an issue of willpower. It's not a question of character problem. It's it's like. Did you just get exposed and conditioned in just the right way to to accelerate and and escalate the dependency on a certain thing? Yeah. Um, so I know you have a good definition for this, but how how do you define addiction? Yeah, and I want to thank you for bringing that up because it would be wonderful if we could all destigmatize the human condition because really addiction is just part of the human condition, and we've stigmatized it probably out of fear. And a way as a way to distance ourselves from others, and for whatever reasons, people stigmatize it. Uh, but it's a it's a hugely stigmatized thing, and it really only causes more suffering when there's a lot of separation. Because say somebody says, "Oh, that person's an addict, and I'm not." Well, in reality, you know, let's use this definition that I learned in residency: uh, continued use despite adverse consequences. Right. So, how many of us? haven't continued using something, whether it was our phones or exercising or whatever, Coffee. despite adverse consequences. Yeah. Yeah. MS- MSNBC. Right. right. <laughs> news addicts, all the news and everybody's getting addicted to the news right now. So all of all of these just point out this basic human condition that's really just a survival mechanism. And in modern day society, it's been hijacked. So you know, no, no single person's at fault for this. This is just how our brains work. And it's really important that we see that this isn't about somebody being addicted. This is about how our brains work. And, you know, God forbid we work together to help us all kind of see that clearly so we can unlearn some of these habits, maybe even together, rather yeah. than pointing fingers. So even though you, you took that on and, and self-revealed as yourself as an, an, a thinking addict, um, that's all of us. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm save the very enlightened ones, but that's all of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I certainly saw it myself. You know, I'd go on these month-long retreats and just see how much my brain would try to get me to stop meditating. You know, I, I just start labeling it the world's greatest idea because my I'd be sitting on meditation and my brain would be like, oh, here's a great experiment to do. And then I'd get up and write it down just so I wouldn't forget it. And then another one would come up. And then it took me a couple of days. And I was like, wait a minute. I can't be having that many great ideas. And I realized it was my brain just trying to get me to get off the cushion and, and, and you know, and just because it loved to think. My brain loves to think. And I was feeding it every time I wrote something down because I was like, oh, maybe that is a good idea. I shouldn't forget that one. Uh, using your own research, I'm going to flag that and challenge you later. Good. <laughs> I'll come challenge. back to that. Because um, I'm not, I'm not sure that those those insight great ideas are necessarily a uh, ne- like a, a negative addiction to thinking. Like I, I think, but we'll, let's come back to that. But let's let's yeah. let's fo- home in on like the sense of self that gets created through thinking and 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 then the traps of that therein. Yeah. So the more we identify with a certain idea, the more we defend it. And the more we think, well, yeah, this is really good, or somebody else, you know, this is where social media plays a role. We put some pithy comment out on Twitter, and everybody gives us, or, or Facebook, or Instagram, or whatever our social media du jour is. And then we get a bunch of likes, and we're like, yeah, that was a great idea. Oh, yeah, boy, I'm a pretty smart guy, or a pretty witty guy, or whatever, you know? So, the more we get those things, the more they reinforce this concept of I am, whether it's I am witty, I am smart, I am whatever. Yet, you know, and we, we see this in science all the time. And this is this is so common. There was this uh, this saying about physics. Um, they talked about how does physics progress one funeral at a time? <laughs> 
because pe- people are so um, addicted to their own theories and ideas. You know, this is in theoretical physics. And when somebody becomes really popular, when everybody's basically giving them a bunch of likes and saying, yes, that's a great idea, it's really hard for some nobody to come up and say, well, you know, your data don't actually fit with the experimental findings that we just had. And that's when scientists uh, cease to be scientists. They become preachers because they're preaching the gospel of their own theory. And they and they love, you know, you, how many theories are named after somebody. You know, it's mm-hmm. like my theory of greatness or whatever, my theory of everything. And so the more we even get addicted to that piece, the harder it is to step back when somebody says, you know, that emperor over there is not wearing any clothes. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing the, like, without using this language, but the sort of the cult of personality, mm-hmm. group cult dynamics, group thinking that can occur around a, a predominant idea or thinker. Right. Uh, and, the, and the more power that person has, we see this in, with people in very high positions, the less likely people are to give them negative feedback because that person stands only to get punished uh, for giving honest, fe- potentially honest feedback. And so, you know, this is where it's even more dangerous the higher somebody goes, uh, the, you know, the less likely they are for people to be up there with them saying, hey, dude, that was a, you know, that's a bad idea, and for them to actually listen. And so how does that play out in, on, the, on the micro level of the individual? Because mm-hmm. the individual sort of has that whole process on, 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 a, micro, on a microcosmic level, right? Yeah. So it could play out on an individual level where, you know, if I write something and I think, wow, that's a really good idea. And then my publisher, my editor comes back and says, you know, you should cut that part. There's a there's a term kill your darlings. Have you heard that one in writing? No. Kill your darling. So the idea is the things that we think are really great are usually the ones we're blind to actually seeing how great they are or not great. So we have to be willing to let go of these things uh, when so on the on the microcosm level where, you know, we just look at something and we're like, oh, yeah, that felt really good to write. I really resonate with that. And I'm the only one that resonates with that. And everybody else is like, I don't understand what you just wrote, dude. That's gibberish. And we're like, no, that's poetry. That's Shakespeare. That's better than Shakespeare. You know, and the more people push back often, the more we push on them. You know, there's a when there's a force or an action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So we're even pushing back on that. So that can happen on the individual level. We can see this on the family level where we have family members that aren't willing to challenge us or might be in the same mindset. So you could think of group think of two, where it's somebody and their partner. And they're like, oh, yeah, this. And then the other person's like, oh, yeah, that. And then they just cycle off. And everybody else is like, you two are crazy. What are you talking about? So you can see that there. And then just add more people, and then you get the the cult mentality. So you can see that on an individual, on a two-person, and on a multi-person level. And we also see this on social media. The more trolls people have, uh, the more likely they they are to believe their own hype. And so I love that. I think it's a Lojong uh, training saying from the Tibetan tradition where they say, don't believe your own hype. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, but on, on the level of the individual, um, where there's a, a, a kind of an implicit felt sense that we all ride around with of being the thinker having our thoughts until we start to meditate. And, and I know you know this, but just to sort of flesh it out for the audience, I think one of the things that most in, in novice meditators struggle with the most is just sitting down and confronting the, the, the direct experience of themselves not being in charge of their thoughts. And then they try to double down on controlling their thoughts to become a good meditator when actually the initial insight that they aren't in control of their thoughts is the first major step towards liberating themselves from the tyranny of their thoughts. Wait, you were in my head, weren't you? (laughs) Yes, I can totally relate to what you're saying. Right. (laughs) But there's... So... I guess what I, if we can try to connect the addiction of and the and the in the intermittent reinforcement of a smartphone, mm-hmm. I'm wondering. And I think I've been seeing this, but I'm wondering if you would re- agree with me here that there's something about the nature of thoughts in terms of the reward mechanism that does create an intermittent reward schedule that 
ties oneself up in knots of that sense of self, meaning like the thoughts we have, most of them, the garden variety thoughts are not so good. They're kind of meh, they're, kind of, they're negative. They're, there's, a, there's an implicit negativity bias of the brain. Um, and it's the random positive ones that kind of, I'm wondering if, if it hooks us it, it, with greater dopamine to that whole di- ball of dynamic. Yeah, I could totally see that. I don't, ha- you know, I don't know of any specific studies that have looked at that, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me, especially, you know, it's like you know, if somebody's trying to um, just let themselves be creative, you know, it's not like bam, 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 bam. We just have creative thought after creative thought. It's that we're, you know, we're noodling along and then suddenly our brain links these two things that it has never linked before and then we get that bang bam oh yeah that's a there that's a link i'd never thought about that for before so that totally fits with the intermittent reinforcement schedule right so then i think if if that if you're if you're on board with that then i I, i'm wondering if well I, i would like to move into discussing how the practice of mindfulness and i i want to just flag it here too we could talk about deliberate mindfulness versus a more effortless natural form of mindfulness and just so you know i recently the, your predecessor on the podcast was Locke kelly yeah. so so we got talking about this a little bit and he said well uh-huh. you got to ask judd more about it because he's he's the, he's the research guy um but maybe in in the studies you've done how does how do you see mindfulness particularly maybe more of a deliberate mindfulness because that's my sense of what's been studied the most so far and then we can maybe get into talking about how uh, an effortless natural form of mindfulness would also offer therapeutic relief um, in contrast. Yeah. So we could, and I think people all have to ask you how you're defining these things. So we yeah. could certainly define and dissect these, but I'm also wondering if we could take this from the perspective of kind of what if we played with not not working with these concepts, but just working with things that are concrete that everybody can understand without having to have a working definition running in their head. So let's let's focus on approaching this from the standpoint of awareness. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge myself to not use the word mindfulness for the rest of this podcast spontaneously, and unless you're asking me a question about it, because I I think that it's especially based on um, the research that we're doing. That it's really awareness that is that is what changes behavior, and so we can talk about deliberate versus you know effortless M word, um, but we can also we can also just say well what are we talking about experientially? And, and we're talking about awareness, becoming aware of thoughts, becoming aware of emotions, becoming aware of body sensations, and then of course you know hearing, seeing, tasting, you know the other senses, and if you look at it from Okay, I'm going to go Buddhist on you for a moment. Is that okay? Go there. Uh, uh, so in the Pali Canon, which is the canonical teachings of the Buddha, there's this, I'll summarize this this line that comes up a lot, which is basically, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So notice how the Buddha didn't use the word M in that. You know, there was <laughs> the the ancient word for, for M was actually sati, which is remembering. So if we think about this, exploring gratification to its end, what he was talking about was like really seeing the reward value of things. Like, mm. okay, being mean, how gratifying is this? You know, being greedy, how gratifying is this? And exploring gratification to its end means paying attention and being aware of how rewarding a behavior is or not rewarding that behavior is. So I'll give a concrete example. Uh, with, With my patients who want to quit smoking, I have them smoke. And I have them pay attention when they smoke. And they realize really quickly that smoking tastes like shit. Uh, And they can, we actually have this, uh, this, this tool built into our, we have this app called Craving to Quit, where we have them do this smoking exercise and pay attention as they smoke. And it takes about 10 times of paying attention when they smoke for that reward value to significantly drop. We can model this out mathematically. We see the same thing with our, we have an app called Eat Right Now that helps people with emotional eating and overeating. When we have them pay attention when they eat, when they're stressed or when they overeat, it takes about 10 to 12 times of people doing that that, for that reward value to significantly drop. What they're doing is exploring gratification to its end. And 
when they explore that to its end, knowledge and vision arises, and that changes their behavior for the future because they're not as excited to do that in the future. So we could call that deliberate. If we're saying, you know, pay attention when you eat, uh, we could also call that spontaneous because um, as people start to see more clearly what is painful, they're going to start to naturally pay more attention to that. And so I think the two feed on each other. The more we see that something is painful, the more we're going to look out for it in the future because we have seen that it is painful in the future. So I could see one leading more to the other and that second one being more um, spontaneous because we we naturally start to pay attention more because it just feels better. We start to see times when we're getting caught up in anger more quickly and we let go and it feels better. So we get rewarded for that. We start to see times when we're greedy and see that greed doesn't, you know, it actually makes greed worse and makes us want more things. And when we really pay, I'll speak from my own experience, when I pay attention to that, you know, eh, I'm not that excited about being greedy because it's just painful and, you know, amassing stuff, then you got to, you got to take care of it and you got to, you know, whatever. It's just a pain in the ass. So then I compare those things to kindness and connection and curiosity. And it's a no brainer. Like, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather be, I'd rather participate in kindness than in, in greed. I'd rather participate in connection than, uh, than division just because they feel better. And all of that requires is awareness. Uh, awareness and a little bit bit of concept seeing that cause and effect, right? Whatever we do, there's an effect of that behavior. And if it's rewarding, we're going to do it again. And if it's not rewarding, we're going to stop. But we have to pay attention to the reward value. That's the critical piece. It's not actually the behavior that drives future behavior. It's the reward value and the reward, how rewarding it is. Right. So let me let me see if I can clarify the the, the thought that I was having around this. I, and I don't, I agree, you know, with what you just said, I can see, I can totally, and I know the research bears this out, but I can see how bringing awareness to the whole process of, say, the the triggering state or triggering condition, seeing the limitations of the gratification, uh, and and riding that wave out, I can see that as and as you talk about in the book, bringing you know the surfer to the, sh- the stable shore at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was talking about more natural form of awareness um i was building on kind of the i think some of the teaching that law kelly's using and he's buying it from other teachers as well but rather than being aware of the content of your experience rather and so in this case rather than being aware of the the trigger the behavior the, the limitations the drawbacks the, gra- the lack of gratification thereof I, my sense is his approach is you shift the awareness to to sense awareness itself so the, the awareness becomes aware of awareness. Mm-hmm. And in that, and this, is, this ties back into the reward-based model, when one feels their intrinsic, the intrinsic qualities of their own awareness, that itself becomes gratifying. Yeah, it's a, a pretty way. darn good reward. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. So you basically wean yourself off the addiction to the unsatisfying reward and develop a more stable identity within this larger experience of awareness. Yes. And you could say develop an identity with a non-identity, <laughs> right. so to speak, because it's just awareness. It's not about me doing something or me getting something. It's simply about awareness, uh, it resting in awareness itself, which in itself is, is extremely peaceful. It's imperturbable because it's just awareness. Right. And so, and I don't know if you've done any of this yet, but has there been any like research on addiction patterns, comparing and contrasting these two different approaches? We So we've done it. We just finished, I think, last year a, a study with, with people uh, who are quitting smoking. That's probably the closest that I can speak to this. Uh, and let me, as I'm, let me think if there's anything else. But the one-liner on that is, We've identified brain regions uh, and a brain network called the default mode network, which I talk about in my book, that's involved in self-referential processing. And it gets activated when we get caught up in, you know, these things that we're talking about, craving, when we get caught up in fear and anxiety, when we get caught up in rumination with depression, 
all these things activate uh, the default wound network, in particular the posterior cingulate cortex. We've done some neurophenomenologic studies where we've specifically linked up that feeling of contraction, of getting caught up with activation of the network and the feeling of letting go and of connecting and of losing a sense of self with the activation of the network. So we've done that with experienced meditators. You've been involved in some of those studies. What we've just did was we said, okay, can we, can we see how that brain region uh, changes when people pragmatically are trying to change behavior? And does that line up? Do, do they let go of a sense, kind of a, a self, a, a sense, an identification with a certain behavior? So, for example, with um, people who are addicted to nicotine or who smoke cigarettes, their, their default mode network gets really activated when you just show them pictures of cigarettes, right? There's a cue. They anticipate that they're going to get a smoke and, and whatnot. So that contraction that, you know, ooh, I'm about to get that reward activates their default mode network. We can actually show, we did this in a randomized controlled trial, we could activate activate their their default mode network, randomize them to get app based mindfulness training or a gold standard you know National Cancer Institute's app, and then a month later scan them. And what we found was that reduction in the default mode network directly correlated with a reduction in cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. So that that's a direct you know link between theory and brain mechanism and clinical outcome, showing that the less caught up somebody is in you know, even these cue-related um, brain activities, the more likely they are to be able to not smoke. And so, you know, we can we can all apply that to our own lives. But I like that because it's a real clinical and concrete example of bringing all of these things together. Yeah, as you're talking, you know, it, the, the, if I compare and contrast these two strategies, for lack of a better word, one seems to be focused on the content of the like the behavior of the of the person that has the addiction. And the other sort of liberates the addict, the addictive personality from that identity itself, not the 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 thing that you're the person's hooked by, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So you can think of it as, you know, the um, changing our relationship to objects, whether they're thoughts or images or pictures or sounds or smells or whatnot. Yeah. So we can be identified. You know, if we smell smoke. If we're a smoker, we can be identified even subconsciously with, oh, I'm a smoker. But we can also target those brain mechanisms and help people through awareness training, help them unwind that identification. And and you can think of physical behaviors as the same as mental behaviors. So thinking is that same type of process. We can start to look at the reward value of getting caught up in thinking versus the reward value of simply resting in awareness, like you're talking about with Locke right. Kelly's. Well, yeah. And then before I even read your book, um, two summers ago, when Michael Pollan's new book on psychedelics came out, you featured in the like one of the later chapters on addictions. And I became, I mean, kind of blown away by the, these studies showing where someone who gets a heavy dose, like a five, six gram dose of psilocybin, and I should say they were an addict of some sort before, like say uh, alcohol, and they had this, this heavy trip. And then, I don't know what it was, 50% go six months without remission? They're, they had pretty high remission rates. This is Roland Griffith's work uh, at, at Hopkins, really great work. I don't remember the exact numbers, uh, but I think of psilocybin. So let's back up a little bit. The first time psilocybin came on my radar was we had just published a study with experienced meditators back in 2011. I think it was uh, in the journal PNES. And then two months later, this group from University College London, led by David Nutt and uh, Robin Carr Harris, who was the first author on that paper, published in the same journal something about in, uh, in, um IV psilocybin when they injected uh, psilocybin into people's blood and could, they could look at their brain activity. And we saw very, very similar results. So I immediately called them and I said, this can't be a coincidence. And they said, yeah, we think this is very similar. Uh, and then I met Roland and all this stuff. And it, it, it seems that um, psilocybin is like throwing a hand grenade in your brain and kind of blowing up the activation of the default mode network because both experienced meditators decrease the default mode network and psilocybin causes a significant decrease in the default mode network. So you can think of this as targeting that self-referential system. And if we're seeing reduction in that system correlating with reductions in smoking with people learning 
you know, learning to become aware, they're seeing the same thing with psilocybin. The next step there, I would love to see people bring those two together because I think of the psychedelics as a way to point people to what selflessness feels like because a lot of people don't have that experience or they might have had fleeting experiences of it and they, they can't put their finger on it and they certainly can't reproduce it. So you can reproduce that with psychedelics, but it's tremendously labor intensive. The set and setting is really important. You need to have trip sitters. You know, it's not a very pragmatic thing to roll out on a large scale. So if we could do, you know, if we could do some type of a psychedelic trip and have that point people toward a direct in a direction, we could then give them specific uh, systematic training to help them train themselves to see that they can get there on their own. And this is where, you know, work by La Kelly and many other teachers are doing this. Uh, so it, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, how you could combine those two to really jumpstart the process, but then train people to be autonomous where they don't need to rely on something else. You know, you don't want to become, and psychedelics are not addictive. They're one of the least addictive uh, uh, substances out there. And not actually did this big, um, this big report for the for the uh, the UK and actually got fired for it because he 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 did this accurate report of all what you know the what's the most addictive thing and what's the least addictive and psychedelics were way low on the list and the and the um, whatever you call it the government didn't like that right. and so they fired him and he's like dude I'm a scientist I'm not you know, that's just the way it it came out those are the data so anyway um, so they're not addictive but we could still become dependent you know we can't go driving around high on psilocybin so we got to find ways to be able to actualize that in our own direct experience so we can actually tap into it without the need of psychedelics right yeah um, and I, I the question that's bubbling in the back of my mind is what is it about the deep meditation or the psychedelic experience that leads to kind of rewiring of the brain, the neuroplasticity change that leads to long-term behavioral outcome? Yeah, so I think this relates to this reward value piece because that's really, you know, at the heart of, of behavior change. So the more, so let's just be super pragmatic here, okay? So you tell me, uh, we didn't set this up, so I'm asking you spontaneously. You have no idea what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, tell me what feels, if you had to pick um, closed or contracted as one category and open or expanded as another category, where would you place fear? Closed and contracted. Yeah, in your own experience, right? Yeah. Not just conceptually. How about anxiety? I felt it. When you weren't coming on the call at the time, yeah. set time, and I know where you were, I was having anxiety, fear, like, like what was going on? What the hell? Like, yeah, I, I was, and, and 10 minutes prior to that, I'd been lying on my back doing some nice deep breathing to get myself in the zone, and then I, I, I was ready to go, and then you were not oh. there, and I was, I, was in a, I was in an anxiety hole. So I know that one well. Okay, so you're in an a-hole, huh? Interesting. <laughs> not, an a, not an a-hole, I was in an a-hole. In an, in an. <laughs> so, sorry about that bad joke. Um, don't reinforce me. <laughs> oh, Judd, you're so hilarious. <laughs> no! So, um, there, right, we've got this category that's easy for anybody to tap into and know experientially what we're talking about. I didn't give you a definition. I didn't say, hold, this is a working definition. I just asked you, where does it fit? How about joy? What category, closed or open? I'd go open more or less. I mean, okay. I, can, I can see that I overthought it for a second. Like I can see a <laughs> contraction around joy. Like yeah. I'm, I'm the one that's joyful, but in general, when there's like unbridled joy, it's yeah. just an open engagement with what's, yeah. what's flowing. Yeah, so don't think about these too much. How about uh, kindness? Open or closed, if you had to pick? Open, because usually it's other-focused. Yeah, yeah. When, and even kindness toward ourselves can feel open, uh, although it's hard for people to realize that in the Western world. How about uh, connection when you're having a good conversation with somebody, closed or open? Open. Okay, good. So we've just uh, teared our scale, T-A-R-E-D, you know, if you, um, like set the, done the level setting with our scale. If you think of it, you know, um, you've got to calibrate your instrument, let's say. Mm -hmm. So we've just calibrated our experiential instrument with two ends of the spectrum, closed versus open. And we can see that fear and anxiety fall into one category on one end of the spectrum and joy and connection and curiosity fall into the other end of that spectrum. So what this is all about. So if somebody takes psychedelics, they can, you know, they can answer for themselves. Does it feel open or closed if they're having a good trip? Right. 
it, it, it blows the mind so much that they lose a sense of where closed is. So you can think of closed as a marker of a sense of self. It says, here I am, and the rest of the world is outside of me because I, I feel this, okay? And so the more we blow that wide open with psychedelics and the more we learn to see how painful it is to feel closed and contracted, the more our brain says that's not very rewarding. And also the more we give it this, what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer of kindness, of connection, of curiosity, um, the more we, our brains naturally see, oh, I'd rather hang out here. And so all we have to do is really train ourselves to focus our awareness on that cause and effect relationship. When I'm being a jerk, do I feel closed or open? And how does that feel? When I'm being kind, am I being closed or open? How does, how does that feel? So we can use the open-closed spectrum as a marker, as a kind of a, a, a selfometer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's a term, but let think of it as a selfometer. I've never thought about that before. And so we've just we've just made this up. Okay, a neologism, so, neologism of the day. Yeah, there are neologism of the day. So this selfometer, and the more contracted we are, the more we know there I am, and the more expanded we are, the more lost we are to who we are, and the more connected we are. You know, this is this fits with Csikszentmihalyi's. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was this uh, psychologist who coined the term flow. And he defined it as effortless, timeless, joyful, selfless, mm-hmm. right? So the more we expand and lose a sense of self, the more we fit into flow, as Csikszentmihalyi would define it, the more we simply are resting in awareness because there's no boundary between us and the rest of the world. There's just stuff happening, and we are part of that mix. We even had an experienced meditator. Um, I gave a TEDx talk, I think, where I showed a slide of this, where an experienced meditator got in our fMRI scanner, and we were doing real-time neurofeedback so we could watch her brain in real time, and her her default mode network activity started bottoming out. And right after the scan, I asked her what was going on. And she said, oh, there was a sense of flow and it deepened in the middle. She was just paying attention to her breath, but she got into flow and her PC, her default mode network activity bottomed out. And so that we got this snapshot of her spontaneously getting into flow, describing it, and also seeing how that brain activity, that self-referential brain activity directly correlates with it, as in that, that activity gets lower and lower. The the less we are caught up in our sense of self. So it was a beautiful example, spontaneous example of that happening and seeing the brain activity with that. How cool is that? Okay, so now I want to jump in and, and loop back to your experience on retreat, long-term retreat, having these brilliant ideas coming to you. Because this, <laughs> this relates to what Locke was talking about on the last episode, okay. where it sounded like you, or no, his colleague at NYU, and I think you were doing other research similar to this, but they were having meditators being studied and instead of doing a deliberate like self-generated style of meditation they were uh, prompted to do uh, a more effortless non-dual form of mindfulness where they they shift their awareness into feeling awareness itself Mm -hmm. and uh it sounded like from his description rather than seeing the default mode network go completely offline when the meditation was was going well, that there was actually a balance of neural networks between the default mode network and the task positive network. Yeah. So I think what they were describing was functional connectivity results. So you can't directly compare those to the results that I was just talking about. Uh, because functional connectivity looks at relative activity within networks. Uh, what we were looking at is a state. Um, so, uh, condition A to condition B, like change relative changes in activity. Mm-hmm. So activity changes are different than connectivity changes. They were looking at connectivity changes. We were looking at activity changes. Because hmm. I got the sense from him was, that was like, yes, there's some, some negative stuff associated with the default mode network, but it's not an, it's not an all negative story that a lot of creativity and and okay. uh, in, okay. uh, creative insight comes from from the default mode network. Let's, let's dispel some myths here. Um, so one, it's not that the default mode network is associated with negative things. All the default, me- at least the posterior cingulate. Let's get really specific. The posterior cingulate is really it's associated with this contracted feeling, and what that might do is be this timestamp that says, "Okay, when this happened, I was there." Right. So we, we tend to remember things that are emotional. So something really emotional causes this contraction like, whoa, I almost got hit by a bus. 
And it's the I almost got hit by a bus that helps us learn, okay, I should look both ways before crossing the street. There's nothing negative about that. It's mm-hmm. just when we get caught up in like, oh, no, I might get caught uh, hit by a bus that, that it becomes problematic. So it's not that the default one network is a negative or a bad thing. So there have been studies out there that say, oh, mind wandering is associated with creativity. Okay, we tend to mind wander about 50% of waking life. If you So if you happen to be going along and you have a creative thought, there's a 50-50 chance that you are mind wandering when you have that creative thought. So that could be true, true, and unrelated. That could be correlation without causation. There have been a number of studies, I'm going to have to say the M word, there are a number of studies associating mindfulness specifically with creativity. Um, so it's really important that people not think, oh, you have to be mind wandering, which is associated with increased default mode network activity, to be creative. This is really about getting into the nuance of what's going on. When we're mind wandering, often we're caught up in the excitement of spontaneous thought. That tends not to be when we've had a really good creative thought. We might have had a good creative thought, and then we get caught up in the excitement of, oh, that thought was really great, and there's the default mode network activity. It's not the it's not the creative thought itself that necessarily activates the default mode network. So I think people have to be really careful about just mm-hmm. blanketly associating default mode network activity with creativity. Default mode network activity is happening so much of the time. There could be lots of things happening that we're falsely associating with that that are not actually causally connected. What we found using neurophenomenologic studies where we can directly link up people's subjective experience with default mode network activity is that default mode network activity gets activated when we get caught up in stuff and when we get caught up in thinking is one of the things there. So caught up, I would not correlate caught up with creativity. I think creativity can quickly spawn caught up like, oh, yeah, that was a great idea. I got to write that down, which is my experience. But that's very different than saying default mode network activity is, um, you know, is is creativity. And so this is this reverse inference problem that a lot of people run into uh, where they say, oh, brain network got activated. Therefore, this must have been happening. We have to be really, really careful about that. And it's only neurophenomenologic studies that can actually tease those part, apart where you're measuring subjective experience at the same time as brain activity. And there aren't that many studies that have been done like that. Sorry to go off on that. No, that was great. And I, you know, just to put a marker on that for the audience, I'll have to re-listen to that last bit maybe five times, and I think I'll, I'll get it. <laughs> but no, I think that's, that, was, that was really good. But, you know, maybe I'm like, I have, I have a, an agenda here, but because I, I have found this kind of resting awareness practice so helpful um, and, and so conducive to ease and a sense of flow in my life. Yeah, what, it what, is. I, th- I, th- I think what uh, Locke was saying, attributing to your study, I think with the EEG on, the, on this kind of practice, was that it was producing higher frequency gamma waves as well. Is well, that true? Or? It's, no. We were looking <laughs> at, um, so we were looking at a specific brain regional activity. We were using a specific technique called source estimation where you can actually do a GPS right into deep into the brain and you can use EEG to measure specific brain regions, which is different than just saying increased gamma. And we were actually specifically looking at decreased gamma in the in the posterior cingulate activity because people had found that um, increased gamma in the default mode network using intracranial recordings, which are the most accurate ones, were associated with uh, default with uh, mind wandering. So we looked at that part specifically and we did a double blind study showing that it was actually decreased activity in the default mode network, um, or I should say decreased gamma, uh, gamma band activity that was associated with, um, with meditation. So it's different than increased gamma generally. It's a totally different question. It's, and that's a more... Was it, are there any meditative approaches that, that have been correlated with increased gamma frequency I, I, glo- I think, globally in the brain? Yeah, I, I think Richie Davidson has done had done some early work on that in in Tibetan monks, but I, you'd have to go and check that because those studies were published a long time ago. I don't remember the details. I do remember seeing those. I just thought you were adding a new new piece to it. Apparently, just a, a different question. Yeah, a different yeah. question. All right. Look, Judd, I feel like I could talk to you about it for another hour or two, and I you know we had a 
have a fairly we're over our past our, 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 <laughs> our, our cutoff point but i want to thank you so much for your time it's been fantastic talking to you and i will be linking to you and your book and website and youtube talks and all of that for the audience but great thank you big bow to you and keep on the great work you're doing thank you thank you very much Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Judd. Things did get a little squeezed with our time there at the end. But after we recorded this conversation, Judd shared with me that he's hard at work on his next book, and he's more than happy to come back on the podcast to discuss that and other topics again at a future time. In the next episode, I will attempt to distill some of the big takeaways that I got from this interview with specific applications for how you can integrate those takeaways into your practice. So stay tuned for that. For more information about Dr. Judd, including links to his book, The Craving Mind, and his website, those links are conveniently waiting for you in the show notes below. For now, I wish to thank you for your attention and your presence. Stay safe out there, practice kindness, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.